This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Seeing the Ways of God Clearly. In the first half, Jean B. Bingham shares her address, How to Be Happy Now and Forever. Then in the second half, James B. MacDonald speaks on spiritual cataracts. Usually when I begin to speak, I say, I'm delighted to be with you. And I am today. Although it's a humbling experience to look out at each of you from right here down in front and then continue that gaze all the way up to the top rows of this vast building. From this perspective, though, the thing that catches my eye is a light in your faces, which indicates such great potential for future happiness and success. Perspective is an interesting phenomenon. Depending on our position or what instruments we use, what we are looking at seems to change, often dramatically. For instance, when we look at the moon with our naked eye, it appears to be a smooth, flat silver disk that glows softly and seems to either expand or get smaller night after night. Viewed through a powerful telescope, however, the moon looks much different. We discover that the part that seems to be missing is actually hidden in shadow and can now be seen to complete the spherical shape. We can see that it is full of craters and dark spots and does not radiate with its own light but reflects light from the sun. Microscopes provide an even different perspective. These instruments let us look at something very closely, so close that unless you know what you are looking at, the object might be hard to identify. This perspective is useful in discovering very small details that can make a very great difference to the whole organism or system. How about an overhead perspective? A view from high above can make a landscape look much different than the same location viewed at eye level or even foot level. And then there is a train track perspective. Straight lines seem to converge as they stretch farther into the distance. Artists use this technique to make our brains see distance, depth, and position in their representations of objects that were actually drawn on a flat surface. Speak of seeing with our brain, I've always been intrigued by the famous Penrose stairs that seem to ascend and descend at the same time in a never-ending sequence. In high school, I practiced drawing another optical illusion called the impossible trident on the edges of my notepaper until I could do it without looking at the reference. I was fascinated with the figure that presents two perspectives at once, an impossible scenario for the brain to readily accept. Perspective can also be a particular attitude towards something or a point of view. Looking at a situation through the lens of our own experiences, we tend to suppose that our perspective is a right one and discard other viewpoints as flawed or incomplete. Even the choice of ice cream flavors can have us shaking our head in disbelief at the incorrectness of our friend's judgment. (laughs) What, you don't think roasted almond fudge is the best flavor ever? The viewpoint that makes all things clear is an eternal perspective, the perfect, all-encompassing perspective of our Heavenly Father. With His ability to see and know and understand all things past, present, and future in a higher and broader and deeper way than we possibly can, His perspective is complete. From His vantage point, God sees us and everything around us as they really are and as they really will be. His viewpoint is long-term rather than being limited to the here and now, allowing him to see our divine potential rather than just our present or past condition. And he looks at all his creations through the lens of love. 
As if using a powerful microscope, he sees into the heart and mind of each of his children from a perspective of loving mercy and eager support rather than hope-crushing criticism. And with a range more complete than the most powerful telescope, he sees the big picture, viewing progress in individuals as well as galaxies from all eternity to all eternity. Well, back in our current everyday Earth, daily challenges seem sometimes overwhelming. As prophesied today, the whole Earth is in commotion. Trouble is on every side, in every city and community. Wars and rumors of wars, famines and earthquakes, false prophets and ubiquitous iniquity are our everyday news. The reports we hear are colored by the opinions of those who shout the loudest or desire power above all else. It can be difficult to feel secure in this world with its ever-present dangers to spirit, mind, and body. And then there are our own personal challenges. Getting that project done with excellence and by the deadline, finding answers to relationship questions, living with the consequences of poor choices made by ourselves and others that impact you, dealing with health issues and financial constraints, and wrestling with a host of other problems, both those shared by all who are here and those challenges unique to you can distract and discourage. So how does having an eternal perspective help us overcome these here and now personal challenges? How do we find joy while experiencing these daily and sometimes hourly trials and tribulations? Embracing an eternal perspective can play a large part in a successful earthly journey. Beginning with the knowledge and faith in God's plan of happiness, having trust and confidence in Jesus Christ's Atonement, and planning, prioritizing, and then acting in faith and patience are keys to keeping an eternal perspective that allow us to progress and be happy regardless of circumstances. Let's think about these keys. First, understanding our divine identity is foundational to our progress and happiness. When we know who we are, why we are here, and where we want to go, we can make choices that bring the greatest happiness and avoid the most pain and anguish, both now and in the eternities. When you know that you were also in the beginning with the Father, you realize you are an eternal being and one who is literally the offspring of God. Think of that. What a glorious spirithood we must have had in that premortal time. Your divine worth is absolute because of your divine parentage. Knowing that God's perspective is based on knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come, you have an assurance of your unchanging value. Because of the choices you made premortally, you have an essential role in God's plan of happiness at a very significant time in the history of the world. Your heavenly parents prepared you to come to earth with those truths embedded in your spirit, and you and I were excited to try to become like them. We saw their happiness and instinctively wanted that same joy. After all, that is what we were created for. Men and women are that they might have joy. President Russell M. Nelson noted that joy is a principle that is key to our spiritual survival. It is a principle that will only become more important as the tragedies and travesties around us increase. The joy we feel has little to do with the circumstances of our lives and everything to do with the focus of our lives. When the focus of our lives is on God's plan of salvation and Jesus Christ and His gospel, we can feel joy regardless of what is happening or not happening in our lives. Joy comes from and because of Him. He is the source of all joy. End quote. 
Trust and confidence in Jesus Christ and His atonement is the second key. When we trust the Savior and the reality of His infinite atonement, we can progress eternally. Even after we get started on the covenant path, all of us have a tendency to meander to the edge of the road or to step or stumble off. In some manner, we might lose our way for a time. The joyful truth is that because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, none of us is eternally lost. Knowing that our Savior has atoned for our sins and provided a perfect example of how to live in this mortal period of existence gives us great hope and reassurance that we can indeed become more like Him, feel joy in this life, and eventually return to our heavenly home. His redemptive power is total because He descended below all things and took upon Himself the pains, afflictions, temptations, sicknesses, infirmities, and sins of every one of us. He understands how to lift and strengthen each of us in our individual challenges because He has felt every single one of them. Not only is Jesus Christ willing to help us, but He is waiting and wanting to help us. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? His father did not wait for him to arrive all the way home, but as soon as he saw his son coming, he ran out to meet him. Our Savior has a distance view, too. He sees us yet a great way off and meets us there, ready to heal and forgive, comfort and encourage as we come to him in our difficult trials. With his help, we can overcome adversity, withstand temptations, and progress on the path back to our heavenly parents. However, in order to really progress, we must be intentional. You've heard it said that if you don't have a plan, you'll be part of someone else's plan by default. So the third key is to plan. You ask, where do I start? Start at the very beginning with your divine identity and purpose. Some of you have already had really difficult experiences in your young lives. Given the negative messages you may have received from others about your divine worth through those experiences, you may wonder if you really are a cherished son or daughter of heavenly parents, and if it is even possible to become like them after all you have experienced. The answer is an emphatic yes. In scriptural language, I would exhort you, which means to invite you with all the fervent sincerity of my heart to learn about and rejoice in your eternal identity and purpose. Make a plan, just like you plan your study of chemistry or literature or statistics or music theory, to understand your divine identity and how to realize your true potential. Read and study the scriptures, both ancient and modern. Read and study the words of living prophets. Accept their invitations to act. Attend the temple regularly, where you will be reminded of Heavenly Father's plan of happiness and your potential for eternal progress. Serve others, both as assigned and in your daily interactions with strangers, as well as family and friends. Following the example of Jesus Christ in this simple way will expand your ability to recognize blessings from heaven. Honor the Sabbath and partake of the sacrament with humble purpose. Keep the commandments and the promises you made in baptismal and temple covenants. And most of all, pray to your Father in heaven often. Tell Him how you feel, ask for His help, and watch and listen for His answers in your daily life. If done consistently, these small yet simple behaviors will yield great spiritual and even temporal benefits. They will help you know who you really are and avoid the traps of the adversary who tells you that you are merely the product of your past environment or that you cannot change or that your worth is determined by your mistakes or the effects of others' mistakes on you. These ideas are false and can sound convincing when you are feeling discouraged 
and if you neglect to connect to heaven. Without these foundational activities, your eternal perspective will be clouded, and it will be difficult to remember who you are, why you are here, and where you want to go. The impossible trident reminds me of worldly philosophies that try to present two opposing concepts as truth. At first glance, we accept these as real. Then, when we take a closer look, we realize there is a problem here. As we look again, we can begin to think the juxtaposition is pretty clever or appealing and try to reconcile the false idea with the true one. In the back of our minds, we recognize that both concepts can't be correct, but we convince ourselves that there is a way to make it so. Just like I practiced duplicating the drawing of the impossible trident until I could do it without looking at the original, we repeat the erroneous philosophy until we become convinced that it can be true. For instance, we have been told by ancient as well as living prophets as an absolute truth that keeping the law of chastity will bring happiness now and in the future. Yet, the world says any number of varying degrees of noncompliance are preferable and possibly even healthier for expressing sexuality. Another falsehood competing with eternal truth is that worthiness requirements take away our individual agency. We have been taught that being worthy to be in the temple blesses and protects us in a myriad of ways. Yet, some strain at the strictness of those requirements and rationalize that personal freedom is more important than obedience to God's laws. Somehow we convince ourselves that we know better and more than our Heavenly Father when we ignore His entreaties to come unto Christ and be perfected in Him, preferring to go our own way. That inevitably results in learning through sad experience. My farmer father-in-law used to say with wry humor, good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. (laughs) Mistakes can be learning opportunities if we choose to change. In every case, the adversary wants us to concentrate on an earthly perspective, thereby limiting our ability to progress eternally. And progression is the purpose of this mortal experience. How many of you are adults? Okay. You are a legal adult. However, recent articles suggest that many people your age do not (laughs) consider themselves an adult. (laughs) They think that because they don't own a home or have three children under the age of five or are not on a fast track in their desired career, they're not yet grown up. Well, let me tell you a secret. No matter how old you get, you will still feel the need to grow up. Adulting, one current term for growing up, does not necessarily mean progressing by the world's definition of success. Some say becoming an adult includes indulging in behaviors that are clearly damaging to children, but somehow have been accepted in the world as appropriate for those of legal age. That criterion is not a godly one. Becoming an adult does mean taking responsibility for your actions, looking to contribute to the happiness of others rather than just focusing on yourself, and keeping commitments to God and man. This is what Helaman, the great prophet in the winding up days before the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, taught his sons, Nephi and Lehi, as they began to grow up unto the Lord. Unlike our growing physically, we do not mature spiritually unless we are willing to change and move to a higher, holier way of living. President Nelson has observed that we have to walk away from the world's false philosophies and let go of some things that may seem harmless in order to grow up unto the Lord. Are there some activities or pursuits that curtail your progress spiritually, physically, socially, or intellectually? What did Jesus do in his mortal life to grow from grace to grace and to increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man? He was humble, willing to learn, 
and obedient. He acted with love and used his gifts and abilities to serve others. He focused on doing his Father's will and kept an eternal perspective. As he learned and served in this way, he also lifted and strengthened others and experienced a deep joy that will last through the eternities. We can never go wrong choosing to follow the example of Jesus Christ. So make a plan, and as you plan, prioritize, which is the next key. Regardless of the nature of your challenges, looking at them with an eternal perspective will help you understand the right priorities. Putting things in perspective is a valuable skill that allows us to progress in the midst of sometimes confusing information or conflicting viewpoints. It helps us understand what is important and what is not. Rather than being paralyzed with uncertainty, we can use an eternal perspective as a tool to determine our direction when worldly signs may be pointing the wrong way. Just like the telescope, which gives additional information about things that seem very far removed from the here and now, an eternal perspective gives us a more complete picture based on truths that do not change with time. And similar to a microscope, an eternal perspective encourages us to do a deep dive into self-evaluation. That up-close and personal check will help you know where you need to change, which in turn will focus you on the most important and most impactful choices that will bring you closer to your eternal goals. When Jesus was 12 years old, he traveled to Jerusalem for the feast days with his family. As the group departed for home, they discovered he was not with them. Joseph and Mary searched for three days until they found him teaching in the temple. His response to why he had not come with them is instructive. He replied, Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? He understood the focus of his life and prioritized accordingly. Have you ever asked God, What should I be about? His answer will no doubt be instructive to you. Take the time to ask and ponder. Discover what is of highest priority and then use your time accordingly. The Lord has promised that when we do the most important things first, the other things will be accomplished in the right time and order. Elder David A. Bednar encourages us to not allow the concerns of this world to so dominate our time and energy that we neglect the eternal things that matter most. Sometimes we try to run so fast that we may forget where we are going and why we are running. End quote. Prayer, studying the scriptures, ministering to others with love as the Savior did, honoring the Sabbath, and attending the temple. Those small and simple things actually elevate our vision from the things of the world to the blessings of eternity and will yield astonishing results when we keep them in the foreground. Just a couple of weeks ago, I met two delightful women in Rome, Italy. One is single in her 30s. The other has been married for 20 years and not been able to have children. You might expect both to be unhappy and to be pining for what they most wished for in the world. However, they have each chosen to focus on their current blessings and are living full lives of peace and joy despite not having all their eternal goals met yet. Literally every person I met who knew them enthusiastically expressed their love, deep admiration, and appreciation for these wonderful women, commenting that their consistent contributions to others' happiness were invaluable. Each of them has chosen to see her life with an eternal perspective and prioritize those elements she does have control of with that perspective. Brandon, another remarkable friend, has chosen to live with that same perspective. Paralyzed in an accident at age 18, just before leaving on a full-time mission, he has spent as many years living with a lack of physical mobility as he did with a fully functioning and highly athletic body. 
Brandon will be the first to tell you that the change was excruciatingly difficult to accept. Yet he has chosen to use his considerable gifts and talents to bless others rather than to dwell on what he wishes he still had. As he serves in the bishopric, his sensitivity to the Spirit allows him to understand, comfort, and encourage those with whom he counsels. Again, choosing to prioritize those things over which he does have control allows him to experience unexpected joy and progress eternally. Life is certainly not fair or equal when individual circumstances are considered. Yet, the Lord gives each of us what we need if we are willing to accept it. Trials and challenges not only are inevitable, but they are required for improvement. It is true, as the author of Hebrews wrote, No chasing for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And when we make poor choices, we must live with and hopefully learn from the consequences. Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 gives us the eternal perspective on those consequences. My son or daughter, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son or daughter in whom he delighteth. Because he loves us, our Heavenly Father helps us see the errors we have made. When we recognize and own those errors, we can choose to change and improve and thereby actually be happier than if we had continued down the original easier but damaging path. Planning and prioritizing give us direction. Acting in faith is a next step. You may be hesitant to move forward thinking that you will make mistakes, and you are right. But stepping forward is the only way we can progress. Just this past General Conference, Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf said, Remember that discipleship is not about doing things perfectly. It's about doing things intentionally. Mistakes and even failures happen to all of us. When something doesn't work out as planned, it can be discouraging. Let me tell you about a failure experience of mine. Each year, my family looks forward to a special treat at Christmas time: lemon tarts made from a recipe of Emma Jane Easton Ratcliffe, my faith-filled English great-great-grandmother. These delicious morsels are a palm-sized cup of delicate, flaky crust filled with intensely flavored, buttery-sweet lemon curd. Doesn't that sound good? Well, the first time I made them, they looked beautiful cradled in the muffin tins. But as I attempted to remove them, each one crumbled into a mess. Virtually none of them came out intact. My first thought was, I am never doing this again. However, with the encouragement of my family, who thought the piles of gooey lemon crumbs tasted great, even though they weren't all beautiful, I tried again. These many years later, most of the tarts come out whole. In the process, I learned that it takes a lot of time and careful attention to detail, as well as patience and persistence, to make something that is of high quality. Spiritual progress also takes time and attention to details, as well as patience and persistence. And no matter how many mistakes we make, the Savior is there to help us learn how to do and be better. We don't have to be perfect all at once. What matters is our effort. Our Heavenly Father does not expect perfection from us in this life, but He does expect us to keep trying. Think again of the train tracks. The perspective seems to narrow as they stretch into the distance, but acting with an eternal perspective is actually the opposite. The more completely we live the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more expansive our future becomes. Recently, I met a woman who had spent the last four years in jail. As a young adult, she listened to the philosophies of the world and convinced herself that she could exercise all the options offered. 
Yet as time passed, she eventually lost the power to choose for herself. Only when she became humble and trusted in God's ability to heal her was she able to walk away from the enticements of the world and rid her life of the damaging behaviors and attitudes she had adopted. Now she is filled with faith, confident in the Lord's ability to help her fulfill her divine potential. She has a world of possibilities open to her and rejoices in her freedom to make those choices that will lead her back to her heavenly home. And what about that bird's eye view compared to standing on the street or looking up from below? An eternal perspective gives us the ability to see the big picture as well as to see our fellow travelers as the potential rich individuals they really are, while also reminding us of the need to be humble because we all stumble at times and we all need help to reach our goal of eternal life. Like a simple magnifying glass that brings things into focus using the light of the sun, the gospel of Jesus Christ will bring your life into focus with light from the Son of God, our Savior and Redeemer. He looks at all His creations with the light of love, knowing that love melts differences, softens heartache, lessens pain, lifts spirits, and empowers progress. So as King Benjamin taught, believe in God, believe that He is, and that He created all things, both in heaven and in earth. Believe that He has all wisdom and all power, both in heaven and in earth. Believe that man doth not comprehend all the things which a Lord can comprehend. Believe that you are indeed a child of heavenly parents, that you were loved and taught eternal truths by them. Believe that keeping God's commandments and following the guidance of our prophet will help you become what you really want to become. I promise that as you plan, prioritize, and act with humble faith in God's love and in the Atonement of Jesus Christ, you will develop an eternal perspective that will help you overcome the challenges of your life, and you will feel unexpected, even indescribable joy. You will be guided and blessed, lifted and strengthened to follow the covenant path that leads to becoming your very best eternal self. Of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Seeing the Ways of God Clearly. We've just heard from Jean B. Bingham. After the break, we'll return with James B. MacDonald for Spiritual Cataracts. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Seeing the Ways of God Clearly. Next is James B. MacDonald, chair of the BYU Department of Economics at the time of this address, titled Spiritual Cataracts. It's a humbling experience to speak with you this morning, to have friends and family, missionaries, colleagues, and many others. I'm grateful to be here. As I've reflected upon the message I would like to share today, I was reminded of an experience that my mother-in-law, Helen Thomas, had a few years ago. She noticed that her vision was deteriorating. The images she saw were becoming increasingly blurred and faint. Finally, she scheduled an eye exam and was told she had cataracts. Fortunately, she was able to have corrective surgery, which restored her vision. My mother-in-law was so excited after the operation, she said, 
I hadn't realized how much my eyesight had changed. I've not been able to see this well for years. My vision must have changed just a little bit at a time. There are important lessons in this experience for all of us. Thus, I will first talk about cataracts, their causes, their consequences, and correction. Then I will draw a parallel with the uh, causes and prevention of cataracts with what we might refer to as spiritual cataracts. Now let's talk about cataracts. Many cataracts begin as small spots or specks in the lens of the eye. These spots interfere with light rays which pass through the lens to be focused as an image on the retina in the back of the eye. The greater the number of specks, the more obscure the image. These specks can become so dense that the entire lens becomes milky white and the light rays can't pass through the lens, resulting in blindness. But it's important to remember the light is still there, but it just can't pass through the lens of the eye. The effects of cataracts can be illustrated by looking at the stars. If you're high up in the mountains and look at the stars on a clear night, their images are sharp and crystal clear. In a setting like that, it's inspirational to look at the North Star and the numerous other constellations that have fascinated countless generations. However, if you try to look at the same stars from a highly populated area, the stars will appear fuzzy or may seem to disappear because of the physical pollutants in the atmosphere. Just like cataracts in the lens of the eye, the physical pollutants in the atmosphere deflect or block the light rays and obscure the image of the stars so that they appear fuzzy. Even if the light from the stars isn't visible to the naked eye, the stars are still there. In the early days of navigation, the North Star was used to guide ships to their destinations. However, this was not possible when the skies were overcast. Just as those sailors were without guidance on overcast nights, those with severe cataracts miss many things. They may not be able to see the vibrant fall colors on a drive up the canyon or be able to see the excited smile on the face of a newly baptized member of the Church or be able to see the radiant glow of a new bride as she kneels at the altar of the temple. Cataracts, if left uncorrected, can lead to complete blindness, and it often happens just a little bit at a time. As I mentioned, my mother-in-law's vision had not deteriorated that far, and she was able to have corrective surgery, which restored her eyesight. The operation involved removing the cloudy lens and replacing it with a clear plastic lens, which would again let the light rays pass through and focus on the retina as a sharp image. The more I thought about my mother-in-law's experience with cataracts, the more I thought about some different types of cataracts, not cataracts on her physical eyes, but something far more serious, cataracts on our spiritual eyes. Now let's consider some of the important parallels and lessons we can learn by comparing physical and spiritual cataracts. Numerous scriptures seem to refer to spiritual cataracts. We repeatedly read of those having eyes and seeing not, and those whose eyes have been darkened. And Nephi warns, Woe unto the blind that will not see, for they shall perish. Whom else could these scriptures refer to other than those with spiritual cataracts? Specifically, let us remember Laman and Lemuel. They had seen an angel and had heard his voice from time to time, but they eventually reached a point where they were past feeling. Their spiritual eyes had become blind, and there was nothing save it were the power of God which threatened them with destruction that could soften their hearts. So what is it that those with spiritual cataracts are not seeing? 
Those with spiritual cataracts have lost sight of spiritual light. What is the light? In 3 Nephi, Christ tells the Nephites, He said, I am the light. I have set an example for you. Christ is our North Star. He is the source of our light and our understanding. Just as sailors steered by the light of the North Star, so should we steer our lives by the light of Christ's example, His teachings, and His glory. For 200 years after Christ's ministry to the people of Nephi in the Americas, members of His Church focused their eyes and their hearts on the Lord, and they were greatly blessed. In fact, we read in 4 Nephi that there was no contention in the land because of the love of God which did dwell in the hearts of the people. There were no envings, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lyings, nor murders, nor any manner of lasciviousness. And surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. This wonderful state lasted for about 200 years until spiritual cataracts began to cloud the people's spiritual lens. And you know what happened after that. As they lost sight of Christ, they fell into paths of iniquity and the Nephite nation was eventually destroyed. When our spiritual vision is clear, we are happy. How then are spiritual cataracts developed, and what happens when we lose that vision? King Benjamin tells us specifically what happens when we lose sight of the Savior by falling into transgression. He says, And now I say unto you, my brethren, that after you have been taught all of these things, if you transgress and go contrary to that which has been spoken, Ye withdraw yourselves from the Spirit of the Lord, that it may have no place in you to guide you in wisdom's paths, that ye may be blessed and prospered. Thus we see that transgression is a serious spiritual pollutant which will cloud our spiritual lens, blur our image of the Savior, and weaken our resolve to live as He would have us live. Let me discuss four of the spiritual pollutants or transgressions which are mentioned in the verses from 4th Nephi. The first spiritual pollutant mentioned by Nephi is envy. Do you ever find yourself being envious of others? The BYU Counseling Office recently told me that one of the major issues students visit with them about deals with the concern about educational progress, and this often involves interpersonal comparisons. Why is it we so often compare ourselves with someone else, someone who maybe does better in a class, seems to have more friends, better clothes, or perhaps a nicer car? These interpersonal comparisons are often spiritually destructive. The scriptures help us keep interpersonal comparisons in a proper perspective. In the 58th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord tells William Phelps to stand in the office to which he was appointed and to repent for seeking to excel and for not being sufficiently meek. We might ask ourselves the question, well, what is wrong with excelling? Are we not supposed to excel? In discussing this with John Tanner from the English Department, John mentioned that the Greek root of the word excel refers to being better than everyone else. Maybe the objective is not to be better than others, but to merely do our best. John mentioned that additional understanding of this issue can be found in the life of Oliver Granger. In the twelfth verse of the 117th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, we read that Oliver Granger's name shall be held in sacred remembrance from generation to generation, forever and ever. What did Oliver do to earn such a powerful promise? Oliver wasn't an apostle. He did not accumulate great personal wealth. So what did he do? Well, Oliver was sent back to Kirtland to help dispose of Church property after the Saints left. 
These were difficult times for the Church. But Oliver did as he was asked, and he performed his assignment in such a manner that he received compliments from members and non-members alike. Greater insight into what matters to the Lord is found in verse 13. Speaking of Oliver Granger, the Lord says, His sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase. Thus it appears that the Lord cares more about sacrifice and having a willing heart and mind than he does about whether we win, whether we lose, or whether we accumulate great material possessions. Dishonesty and lying is another pollutant or transgression which will cloud our spiritual vision. Duke University's Center for Academic Integrity conducted a survey of 22 universities in the United States. The purpose of the survey was to assess the level of honesty among students. BYU was included in the survey. BYU set a high standard with 92 percent of the students reporting they had never seen another student cheat during their time at the university. This compares with a national norm of 55 percent. Well, after we've congratulated ourselves, we might step back and just take a little more detailed inventory. One example we might consider is in writing term papers. The cut-and-paste computer technology makes it relatively simple to splice together other people's ideas into our own papers. However, in finalizing our term papers, we must give appropriate credit for other people's ideas, or it is plagiarism. Now let us examine our actions in other areas that might be easily overlooked. Do we make unauthorized copies of music or movies? Do we only use computer software we have purchased or is available as shareware in the public domain? Are we honest in these important areas as well? What are the consequences of envy, of lying, or pride? We read in the 121st section of the Doctrine and Covenants that when we attempt to cover our sins or gratify our pride or our vain ambition or exercise unrighteous dominion, that the Spirit of the Lord is grieved and is withdrawn and our spiritual vision becomes blurred. Tumults and contention is another pollutant mentioned in 4th Nephi. Do you ever find yourself being contentious or argumentative? Do you find yourself picking fights with roommates or with the spouse? Do you find yourself criticizing Church leaders? What are the consequences of contention? Nephi answers that question in 3rd Nephi, where we read that Satan is the father of contention, and we know that the Spirit withdraws from those who become subject to the Spirit of Satan and our spiritual vision becomes obscured. We can illustrate the importance of harmony to the presence of the Spirit with a story from the life of Joseph and Emma Smith. David Whitmer records the following. He said, One morning, when Joseph was getting ready to continue the translation, something went wrong about the house, and Joseph was put out about it. Something that Emma, his wife, had done. Oliver and I went upstairs, and Joseph came up soon after to continue the translation. But he could not do anything. He could not translate a single syllable. He went downstairs, out into the orchard, and he made supplication to the Lord. He was gone about an hour. He came back and he asked Emma's forgiveness. And then he came upstairs where we were, and then the translation went all right. Joseph lost his spiritual vision because of contention. He was told to resolve his conflict, and then his vision was restored. Thus we see the spiritual impact of contention and how its resolution leads to a restoration of our spiritual sight. A fourth spiritual pollutant mentioned by Nephi is lasciviousness, which includes lust and pornography. This problem is real. It is addictive, and unfortunately it is too common. 
Various Church leaders have warned it is more addictive than drugs. This was echoed by a letter I recently received for someone pleading with help with this problem. Visual images are difficult to forget. We all know the tragic story of David of old, whose fascination with the bathing Bathsheba led to adultery, to deceit, and to murder. The accessibility of movies, magazines, and the Internet brings this problem right into our own homes. It is a deadly practice. Don't be deceived. It can creep up on you a little bit at a time. Don't take chances. Avoid it as you would the plague, staying as far from it as you can. If you even have the beginning of a problem, please, please visit with your bishop. What are the consequences of lasciviousness? We read in the 42nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants that he who looketh upon a woman to lust after her shall not have the spirit, and his spiritual vision becomes darkened. There are, of course, many additional spiritual pollutants. King Benjamin tells us that they are so numerous that they can't be numbered and that we need to watch our thoughts, our words, our deeds, and observe the commandments of God. As we allow pollutants of any kind to enter our spiritual lens or to remain unchecked, each additional pollutant causes increased blurring of our spiritual vision and causes us to withdraw from the Spirit of the Lord. However, in spite of our spiritual cataracts, the Lord is still there. We have just let what matters less get in the matter of what matters most. Fortunately, just as with physical cataracts, where corrective surgery holds the promise of a restoration of our physical sight, repentance holds the hope for a restoration of our spiritual sight and being able to return to our Father in heaven. The Lord has told us, He said, If you will repent of your sins, He will remember them no more, and that as often as we seek repentance with real intent, we will be forgiven. My mother-in-law was ecstatic about the restoration of her physical sight. Similarly, how great is the joy of those who fully repent and return to the Lord. Christ changes our hearts. He awakens us out of a deep sleep and illuminates our souls by the light of His everlasting word. A repentant Alma the Younger described his feelings by saying, Nothing can be so exquisite and sweet as was my joy. The choicest blessings in the world are those of a spiritual nature. Spiritual blessings endure and leave a love and a peace in our hearts, and they come from having a spiritual vision unobstructed by spiritual cataracts. However, just as there may be dangers in delaying cataract surgery too long, there are dangers in delaying repentance. Our spiritual cataracts can build up a little bit at a time until we become spiritually blind. The Lord told Joseph Smith in the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants that he who repents not, from him shall be taken even the light which he has received. Let me just share one such example from Church history. In 1835, Lyman Johnson was the first person in this dispensation to be called as an apostle to the Prophet Joseph Smith. These were difficult times for the Saints in Kirtland, and many members faltered. Lyman Johnson was one of those who faltered, and in April of 1838 he was excommunicated from the Church. Lyman remained friendly to the Saints, but it is clear that his spiritual vision was obscured. To some of the brethren, Lyman later stated, he said, I would suffer my right hand to be cut off if I could believe again. Then I was full of joy and gladness. My dreams were pleasant. When I awoke in the morning, my spirit was cheerful. I was happy by day and by night, full of peace and thanksgiving. Now it is darkness, pain, sorrow, and misery in the extreme. I have never since 
seen a happy moment. What a terrible tragedy. And while each of you may feel secure in the faith and immune from temptation or spiritual pollutants, it's important to remember that Lyman Johnson was a member of the Twelve, yet he apostatized and he denied the faith. Lyman Johnson suffered from spiritual cataracts. He did not wake up one morning and say, Today I'm going to apostatize from the Church. Nor did David, one chosen of God, wake up one morning and decide to commit adultery and murder. But he did happen to see a woman bathing, and he did not look away. And the scriptures tell us that he inquired after her. Do we ever inquire after things that will obscure our vision of the Lord? The specks on David's spiritual lenses caused by lasciviousness continued to grow and cloud his spiritual vision until he lost both the spirit and the eternal perspective he once had. Generally, others who have fallen do not decide in an instant, after living a clean and virtuous life, to commit grievous sins. Rather, it usually begins with a small transgression which continues to grow unchecked. It generally happens just a little bit at a time, and so unless we are careful, it will with us as well. We have talked about the causes, the consequences, and the correction of cataracts. Now let's turn to the question about the prevention of cataracts and explore further important parallels between physical and spiritual cataracts. First, concerning physical cataracts, there is medical evidence that certain vitamins and medications that are often referred to as antioxidants, if taken daily or at least regularly, can help prevent the growth of cataracts. How about preventive measures for spiritual cataracts? Are there such things as spiritual antioxidants? Since the specks on our spiritual lenses are transgressions, the role of spiritual antioxidants is to prevent transgression. Thus, in the most general sense, the universal spiritual antioxidant is obedience to the commandments of God. We have been promised that as we draw near unto the Lord that He will draw near unto us, and as we seek Him we shall find Him. And ultimately the Lord has told us, that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am, that I am the true light that lighteth every man that cometh unto the world. What a wonderful promise! When we repent and keep the commandments, we will retain our spiritual vision and know that Christ is the light of the world. Now, what are some specifics? The scriptures prescribe some marvelous spiritual antioxidants, which, if taken daily or at least regularly, will help prevent spiritual cataracts. Let me mention three of these spiritual antioxidants and the associated scriptural promise or guarantee. These spiritual antioxidants are not complicated. In fact, they are so basic that you may be tired of hearing about them, for we hear of them often. Nevertheless, the promises associated with them are real. Let us not falter because of the easiness of the way. They may be easy, but let us be certain to take them daily as they have been prescribed. The first spiritual antioxidant is prayer. It is interesting that in three of the four Gospels the disciples record Jesus' admonition given them in the Garden of Gethsemane to watch and pray lest ye enter into temptation. Thus we learn that prayer helps us avoid temptation and therefore avoid sin, keeping our spiritual lenses clear. Now, how often should we pray so that we may conquer temptation? 
Variations of this counsel are found in both the Book of Mormon and in the Doctrine and Covenants. These variations nearly always include the phrase, Pray always. Specifically, Joseph Smith was told to pray always that you may come off conquer, that you may conquer Satan. Therefore, the prescription of prayer is one that should be taken at least daily. The Nephites also benefited from the power of frequent prayer. Helaman records that as his people prayed often, that their hearts were purified and sanctified. In other words, their spiritual lenses were kept clean as they prayed and yielded their hearts to God. Helaman also teaches us, he said, Yea, see that whosoever may lay hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil, and lead the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course across that everlasting gulf of misery, which is prepared to engulf the wicked, and land their souls, yea, their immortal souls, at the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven. This brings us to our second spiritual antioxidant, for clear spiritual vision, studying the word of God. From Helaman's words, we learn that similar to frequent prayer, the scriptures will help us cut through the snares of the devil to conquer Satan and therefore resist temptation. This is a powerful promise, one that we all desperately need. Again, scripture study is a prescription. How often should it be taken? The Lord commands Joshua that thou shalt meditate on the scriptures day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. He also promises us that whosoever treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. I'd like to share with you an experience of a friend of mine from the mission field which illustrates the power of Scripture. Terry Barrett was sent to fight in Vietnam in 1966. He returned home in 1967 with a purple heart and a bronze star for valor and heroism. After returning home, Terry turned to alcohol to deaden the emotional pain associated with the atrocities of war. Terry developed an addiction to alcohol. In 1998, Terry faced a major surgical procedure. Not being LDS, Terry was hesitant to receive a priesthood blessing offered from an LDS friend. Finally, Terry consented and received the blessing. Concerning that blessing, Terry says, I felt a peace I had never felt before, and a voice said, It will be all right, Terry. As a result of that blessing, Terry's hunger and thirst for alcohol was instantaneously and miraculously transformed into a hunger and thirst for the scriptures. Terry says, To this day I cannot get enough of the scriptures in the Spirit. Terry attends Institute three days a week. Terry, his wife, and daughter were baptized and have been to the temple. He is eternally grateful for the scriptures and the relationship that he now has with the Lord. Just as the Word of God acted as a compass in Terry's life, we have been promised that it can do so for us as well, steering us clear of deception and temptation of Satan. In Alma's parting words to his son Helaman, Alman likens the Word of God to a personal liahona, which will point us in a straight course to a far better land of promise. He continues, The way is prepared, and if we will look, we may live forever. He then pleads, And now, my son, See that you take care of these sacred things, the scriptures. Yea, see that ye look to God and live. The third and final spiritual antioxidant I'll discuss is service. In King Benjamin's famous address from his tower, he instructs his people that for the sake of retaining 
a remission of your sins from day to day, I would that you should impart of your substance to the poor. That is, in our vernacular, in order to maintain spiritual vision unclouded by sin on a daily basis, we need to serve others. Daily Christ-like service is an important spiritual antioxidant which helps rinse spiritual pollutants from our eyes and also allows us to maintain our focus on the Savior. Again, drawing on the words of King Benjamin, we learn that we cannot know our Savior unless we have served Him, and we best serve Him by serving our fellow men. Thus, daily prayer, daily scripture study, and daily service are three important spiritual antioxidants which help guarantee that we will retain our spiritual vision and have the Spirit to guide us in our day-to-day activities. Are we taking our daily doses regularly? The Lord gives us a beautiful promise for having 20-20 spiritual vision. He says, If your eye be single to my glory, your whole body shall be filled with light, and there shall be no darkness in you. And that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. Therefore sanctify or cleanse yourselves that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that ye shall see him, for he will unveil his face unto you. Let me invite each of you to perform a spiritual eye exam. Let us evaluate how clear our vision of the Savior is right now. Next, if necessary, schedule a restorative surgery of repentance. And finally, remember to diligently and deliberately take our daily doses of prayer, scripture study, service, and obey the commandments of God. I pray that we will so sanctify ourselves that we may be found among the pure in heart and share in the promise given in the Beatitudes that we will see God. I just want to share my testimony that Jesus Christ is the Savior and the Redeemer of the world, that He loves us. He is my North Star. He points the way. Through daily prayer and daily scripture study, I know of His will. And through daily service, I feel of His love. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Seeing the Ways of God Clearly with thoughts from Jean B. Bingham and James B. MacDonald. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.